thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food reel with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. In episode 136 of The Real Food Reel, we are joined by nutritionist Fiona Tuck. Fiona will teach you how to become your own forensic nutritionist and identify the key nutritional deficiencies that may be limiting wellness. In today's show, we discuss cravings, addictions, and histamine and uncover why food volume is rarely the answer. Hi, Fiona, and welcome to the show. Hi, Steph. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. I'm actually really excited to hear a little bit more about you and for the benefit of our listeners who might not be aware of your story, can you tell us a little bit about your background to set the scene, please? Of course. My background is skincare and nutritional medicine. So I've always worked in health and wellness and had a very strong interest in it. I started in spa therapy, skin therapy, which also included nutrition nearly 30 years ago now, which sounds forever. And my role at the time was an international training manager for a skincare company, which involved a lot of education and travel. And I traveled to Asia a lot. And when I was in Asia, I used to spend a lot of time with the locals. And they really introduced to me the concept of eating food as medicine. They would give me different foods depending on how my energy was um, for different ailments, depending on what time of the month, it would depend what you would eat. And this really made me look at food in a different way. I mean, I was brought up thinking food was either good food or bad food, or there was food that would make you fat or food that would make you thin. So I had never really looked at food in the way of medicine before and this really really excited me and so probably just over 10 years ago it's when I went back to study nutritional medicine and since then have just become engrossed with it I find it absolutely fascinating as to how food can really affect us on a biochemical level and really affect how we're feeling on a daily basis and that's really how I how I became nutritional medicine practitioner. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I think, you know, I'd like you to then share about more about your approach and how it's a little bit different. And then, of course, um, your new book. Well, I'm a big believer that the majority of disease or not feeling really on top of the world can stem from nutritional deficiencies. And that might be in our lifetime or it might be in future generations to come because what we put into our mouth today can really affect future generations, which is pretty mind-blowing. And I really feel that it's important for people to understand how important food is and how it does affect us on a biochemical level to the point where, you know, if we lower certain nutrients, that will have a knock-on effect to our general health and well-being. It can manifest as 
things that we might think are everyday conditions that are totally normal. Maybe it's a little bit of dryness in the skin. Maybe it's a headache. Maybe it's just having dry cracked heels or red bumps on the backs of the arms. Maybe it's chronic fatigue. Maybe it's food cravings. But these are all the subtle symptoms of the body trying to tell us what may be going on on an internal level. And quite often, it's the first sign of a nutritional deficiency. So when that gets left untreated, as we begin to age, that can then start to manifest into more chronic conditions. And then even in really serious cases, it can even turn into, um, sometimes it can even turn into cancer or age-related diseases such as dementia, etc. So I'm all about nutrition, looking at nutritional deficiencies, recognizing them, and really encouraging clients optimum nutrition via, first of all, a good diet, but also if needed, nutritional supplementation to get the nutrient level back up. Yeah, food first, of course, um, as I know you're a big believer in. So I wanted to talk more specifically um, with some examples and I will bring up um, some of the research that has recently come to light. Um, I'll let you do most of the um, speaking to this topic, but it is now being considered as one of the greatest breakthroughs in regards to miscarriages. So can you share this research and um, more about the, the conversation with our listeners? Well, the recent research was very recently, I think it was just yesterday, the Victor Chan Heart Institute found new research to suggest that vitamin B3, niacin, can actually help to prevent miscarriage, which isn't really a surprise to me because vitamin B3, as well as many of the B vitamins, are involved in um energy production, cell formation. And so when we're low in B vitamins, that can obviously have a knock-on effect to many different areas of the body, including fertility and including pregnancy as well. And vitamin B, because it's a water-soluble vitamin, can easily become depleted, especially in times of stress, especially obviously during pregnancy when our nutrient requirement goes up. In fact, it's quite interesting because quite often when I, I see clients and they're trying to become pregnant, I always look at their B vitamin status prior to conception. So I was actually really pleased to hear this news because it actually makes people more aware of the importance of vitamins and nutrients prior to going into um conception and pregnancy. So it's very exciting news and I think it's just going to make us more aware of the importance of not becoming low in vitamins and recognising those signs and symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to talk more about your new book, The Forensic Nutritionist. So um, can you give us some some context as to, you know, what approach you've taken and then some maybe some more examples of deficiencies that we can be aware of? Sure. So Forensic Nutritionist really came about from clients and even students when I've been teaching wanting to learn more and they used to ask me what book would I recommend that's a easy to understand book that covers you know what nutrients are in what food how to recognize nutritional deficiencies how to know what foods they should be eating and there was really nothing out there that I could recommend and that really made me think well 
maybe I should write a book. And that's really how the forensic nutritionist came about. I decided to put all my knowledge and information in one book. And there's so much out there promoting, you know, different food fads, one size fits all approach. People are quick to follow the latest diet trend. And we know that that doesn't work for everyone. You know, we're not generic. One size does not fit all. And the answers to health and well-being aren't as straightforward as taking, you know, a pill or following the latest superfood or diet trend. And the forensic nutrition is about taking back control of your health, looking at the signs and symptoms that your body may be telling you of signs of nutritional deficiencies. And it's about recognizing if something's not quite right, maybe recognizing if you're burnt out, stressed out, what's actually happening within the body, and then knowing what are the right foods to eat or when is the right time to go and see a healthcare practitioner to be able to put you back on track. So it's really about that. We've also included meal plans, food diaries, and also healthy recipes depending on different ailments so people know what would be the best food to eat for them as well. So it's, it's, it's getting good feedback at the moment. I'm really excited to be able to share it with everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure it's yeah something you're very proud of. So then from an example's point of view, so we spoke about the connection between niacin and pregnancy health. So that's yes. definitely something to be aware of. What are some other common symptoms you see um, and what that links back to from a nutrient status point of view? Absolutely. Well, just let's go back to niacin for an mm. example. When people are low in niacin, um, classic niacin deficiency, it can show as something as simple as tiredness, low energy, but the most common sign to look for is dryness of the skin um, or almost a dermatitis-type reaction or scaling skin. So if you're noticing that flakiness or dryness of the skin appearing, quite often that can be signs of low vitamin B3 or, you know, some of the other B vitamins as well. A lot of people always think, oh, it must be the essential fatty acids, which it can be as well, but we need the B vitamins to metabolize the fatty acids. So if you're low in B and you're having all the good fats, you can still result in dryness or almost a dermatitis-style um, rash on the skin as well, and that's one of the first signs of low B vitamins. Another common one, zinc, for instance, we know that zinc is involved in many different enzyme reactions within the body. It's also involved in fertility, wound healing, um, hormone production as well. And signs of low zinc can be something simple such as breakouts appearing in the skin. You may not get breakouts, but if you get a cut or a mark on the skin or a burn, it doesn't heal well. So you'd be getting purple marks left behind once the wound, you know, the wound isn't healing properly. So if a breakout has disappeared or a cut has healed, there's still a purple mark that hangs around for a long period of time. That's one of the signs of low zinc. Also, somebody that's very prone to stretch marks, you know, that has a lot of stretch marks, that can also be a sign of poor wound healing. And sometimes those little white flecks on the nails, if they're on multiple nails, that can also be a warning sign that the body is in need of extra zinc too. Yeah, excellent. That's a great example. So the signs are always there. You know, there's 
often um, when we're looking at the face, the body, the nails, those little signs are there. For instance, when we're low in essential fatty acids, for instance, sometimes we can see the little bumps on the backs of the arms, what we call keratosis pilaris. It's like chicken skin. It comes on the back of the arms or on the back of the legs. That can be linked to low essential fatty acids. We can sometimes see very dry, cracked heels that can all be linked to not enough of the good fats in the diet. And vitamin C, you know, one of the first signs of low vitamin C will be bleeding gums. But what a lot of people don't realize is tiredness and fatigue because our adrenal glands rely on vitamin C to nourish them. When we're stressed, we use vitamin C up very quickly. So fatigue and tiredness can also be a sign of low vitamin C. And then if that's left over a chronic period of time, it starts to affect our capillaries and we start to see red capillaries or dilated capillaries very commonly on the cheek area, on the face. Once again, signs that we're not getting enough antioxidants and vitamin C for capillary integrity. And sometimes we also see little red dots on the backs of the arms, not the bumps like the fish oil, but or the lack of essential fats, sometimes they look like little red rings on around the hair follicle. And again, inflammation, we can get inflammation around the nails, all signs of low vitamin C. So the body is constantly communicating and trying to send messages to us. We just need to wake up and start to be more aware. Yeah, absolutely. And you've spoken about some of the symptoms that can manifest that are sort of more physically obvious. Um, I wanted to talk to you about cravings. I know that this is an area that you do cover in the forensic nutritionist. So how does this or how do cravings relate to nutritional deficiencies? Well, the body is always trying to talk to us and give us subtle messages. And one of the ways it can do that is through food cravings. Now, obviously, food cravings, they can be addictions, so have to sort of differentiate between the two and if somebody is on a very sort of high sugar high salt diet they can actually become addicted to that so providing it's not because somebody is eating junk food um the body will crave the nutrients it needs and saying that if somebody is on a high junk food diet the body will start craving um have certain cravings because it's trying to up the nutrients so it doesn't matter how much you eat it's more about the nutrient content of the food if you're not getting the nutrients the body will start to crave the foods to up the nutrients so we know commonly you know an iron craving um happens a lot with pregnant clients when their iron requirements go up and iron cravings are quite strange people can start craving red meat when they've been vegetarian because they need the iron or the b12 and strangely when somebody craves iron they start to crave ice why that is nobody seems to know but it seems to be a strong correlation to craving ice or crunching on ice and low iron and but many different food cravings will affect the actual um, nutrient. So normally, for instance, if you are low in a particular nutrient, you tend to crave the food that that nutrient is in. But unfortunately, the body isn't able to say, oh, you have to have essential fatty acids over fat. It will just crave fatty, oily foods, not knowing the difference. But magnesium, the classic example is magnesium. When we're low in magnesium, our energy becomes low. Very common in chronic fatigue, 
fibromyalgia type syndrome and we'll start to crave stimulants. So coffee cravings are very common in people that have got low magnesium and also as we know chocolate cravings as well. And Chocolate, the dark chocolate is actually rich in magnesium. Raw cacao is a fabulous source of magnesium. But when people choose the you know, milk chocolate, the sweet variety, the actual magnesium content is pretty low and so the cravings continue. What is interesting is when we actually increase that nutrient in the diet, whether it be through food or sometimes you have to go supplement fruit when the nutrient is that low, the food cravings will go away as the nutrient levels come up, which is really, really interesting. And I find that quite fascinating. So if somebody's at a very low nutrient level, doesn't matter how much of that food they're going to eat, they really would then need to take a therapeutic dose to get that nutrient level back up. Otherwise, they'll just maintain a lower level. So sometimes supplementation is the only way to get the nutrients back up. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, fascinating areas. Definitely, um, I'm sure our listeners can find out more in your book, The Forensic Nutritionist. I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk to you about histamine and histamine intolerance. It's definitely something that you know I see in the clinic. Um, so can we start from the top with a little bit of um, context just in terms of what is histamine and what a histamine intolerance looks like? Absolutely. Histamine intolerance I'm finding is becoming more and more um, frequent and I'm seeing a lot more people that are suffering with it. And the problem with histamine intolerance is that it's not always that easily recognized because the symptoms are very similar to an allergy. And histamine intolerance intolerance is basically like a pseudo allergy it's not a true allergy the immune response is not involved but you have all the symptoms of an allergy so then if somebody comes to a practitioner thinking they're allergic to certain foods they'll be tested and they'll come back not allergic and what it actually means is that they have an intolerance to histamine now histamine is a chemical that's naturally found in the body and it's commonly produced when in response to allergic reactions. We need histamine when we are involving the immune system because what it will do is cause vasodilation. It's released from the mast cells and it helps to um, basically allow a res an immune response to get to the cells far quicker. But it's also involved in the digestive system, it's involved in the central nervous system, it's even a component of stomach acid and helps break down food in the stomach. And when we have histamine intolerance, what it means is that the body is unable to process it as efficient, efficiently and therefore what happens, it starts to build up to high or toxic levels within the body and the body can't clear it. And this can normally happen when, um, it can happen for a number of different reasons. It can happen if the enzymes that clear histamine aren't working as effectively. It can happen with some genetic variants. So those people that have or are familiar with the MTHFR variant quite often can have problems with clearing histamine, particularly if somebody is a low methylator, the histamine builds up in the body and it cannot clear as effectively. So there are genetic 
traits that can affect the clearing of histamine as well. And also it can be affected by nutritional deficiencies. So certain nutrients are required for the healthy functioning of the enzymes that clear histamine from the body. So if you're nutritionally deficient, and that may be through not getting enough of the nutrients in your diet, or it may be through gut issues. So if somebody has got poor gut function, celiac disease, Crohn's disease, those types of things that can affect nutrient absorption, they're also more at risk of histamine intolerance as well. And it can be quite debilitating for a lot of people. Yeah, that's a really good way to describe things and I think some context to who might be susceptible. And does it manifest mainly as digestive? And how do we find that out? What sort of testing is available? Well, the first thing to do is really start, I always say, I would test my clients for histamine so you can get your levels tested. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, And that will give a good idea as to how high your histamine levels are, and that gives a good indicator. And quite often, the more inflammation there is in the body, often the higher the histamine, so the two go hand in hand quite often. Also, if somebody is under a great deal of stress or they've got um, high cortisol levels, then the stress in the body can cause inflammation, which has a knock-on effect to histamine production as well. So it's really a bit of a case of being a detective, looking at what's going on in somebody's life, looking at their genetic history, looking at their past history, um, looking at the signs and symptoms, and also really recommending a food diary to look at when these symptoms come and are they possibly linked to some of the foods that they may be eating. And this can start to, you know, put the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together to try and determine what might be going on. But um, quite often if I have a patient that, for instance, has got the MTFHR genetic variant and they're getting these symptoms, then I will test for histamine especially if they're under methylators, that can be a a good indication of what might be going on. And of course, testing for nutritional deficiencies as well. If somebody's coming with chronic fatigue type syndrome, they're tired, you know, they've got the stimulant craving, they're craving sugar and chocolate and coffee, looking at magnesium levels, because magnesium is required for the functioning of the, the Dow enzyme, which is the enzyme that helps to clear histamine from the body. And if that enzyme isn't working effectively, histamine builds up to a potentially toxic level. And so sometimes looking at the nutrients that we may be deficient in and getting those up can actually get the enzymes working at their optimum and that can actually help to clear the histamine. So quite often things like magnesium, the B vitamins, particularly vitamin B6, which again we know is involved in methylation, um, copper, vitamin C, these are all important nutrients and that can help to control histamine within the body. So these can really help by increasing these types of nutrients in the diet and that can actually help to control the histamine. Yeah, great. And what about blood testing or, um, sorry, it's more of the intolerance type testing with um, IgG, I believe. Do you look at that for histamine? I really, no, I don't tend to. I Mm. tend to look at um, the signs and the symptoms Mm. and the nutritional deficiencies and then look at the actual histamine level. Mm. Um, 
normally I find people have had all the testing and haven't come back to any particular foods because they're not actually allergic to the food. They're just producing high amounts of histamine and they're not able to clear. Yeah, that makes sense. But obviously it is found in food. So when someone, maybe they they present with that high histamine blood test and obviously the symptoms, how do you then change the diet to manage that? Yeah, it's a really great question and it's not that simple because mm. some foods that are high in histamine can also be high in anti-inflammatory compounds which can actually help to balance out the histamine. So for the general public, it can be really confusing if they actually look at the foods to know what are good foods to eat and what aren't, that makes sense. So to give you an example, turmeric. Turmeric, um, we know, is very anti-inflammatory. And if you look on some histamine intolerance lists, turmeric is actually recommended to help to lower histamine in the body. However, turmeric actually is a Dow enzyme inhibitor, so it actually slows down the enzyme that clears histamine in the body, but it is extremely anti-inflammatory. So some people find that turmeric is very, very beneficial for them, and then other people will find that turmeric flares up the histamine response. So whilst there are lists saying, you know, some foods to avoid and some foods not to, we can give we can follow them in a general way, but it does depend on each person because some foods will set more, some people off more than others. So while there are guidelines, even they are a little bit grey. There's no black and white. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I mean, it really is when it comes to nutrition. Um, some of the more common questions that we get about histamine are the amounts in leftover foods and then foods like bone broth. What's your experience there? Yep. And again, different things trigger different people. Yeah. Um, the foods that produce the most histamine are the leftover foods, particularly foods such as fish, cooked chicken, cooked meat. So fine, when they're eaten fresh, they're absolutely fine. You know, if you roast a chicken, eat it straight away, no problem whatsoever. But if you then put it in the fridge and then use it the next day, it accumulates more histamine. So the older the food, the more histamine it produces. And I find for most people, that's when it becomes a real issue. So if you think of, you know, cooked chicken or if you're out and you're buying lunch out and you're buying a sandwich and it's got cooked meat in it or cooked pre-cooked fish then that is potentially very high in histamine and that can be a trigger for a lot of people I mean I did have a client who was you know really suffering with sinus problems and watery eyes and just couldn't work out what it is and then when we looked at the diet it was all these high histamine foods and pre-cooked foods and it was a healthy diet you know avocados and chicken and but it was all food that was you know high in the histamine and of course beginning to cut those back and not eat them quite as much has made a huge difference and really has cleared up the sinus problem saying that however I think it's we have to be careful not to completely cut histamine foods out if somebody can look at 
clearing the histamine effectively within the body by looking at increasing nutrients in the diet to help. And they're the nutrients we were talking about earlier, such as magnesium, vitamin C, copper, the B vitamins, folate, zinc as well. Um, looking at getting those levels up. Potentially, sometimes we look at practitioner supplements to help clear the histamine as well to sort of support the Tao function or the enzyme function within the body. But if people can get those up, then they find that they may be able to tolerate small amounts of histamine within the diet. Sometimes when you completely cut it out, the body almost becomes more reactive. So I would say cut it down, but don't cut it out completely unless someone is having a really, really strong reaction. And the best way is to monitor the symptoms and, and write them down. That's probably the best way to do it. Yeah, great. And obviously then it's that individual approach. But I love that you're looking at, um, you know, the types of foods as well. I've seen um, you've actually written an article on your blog that's all about histamine intolerance. So I'll definitely link that in the show notes for those that are wanting to read a little bit more. Um, are there any other supplements that you do recommend? What about um, enzymes or probiotics? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, sometimes enzymes can be recommended to help to support the digestive process. Quercetin can be really useful as well, and that's very, very anti-inflammatory. So I find that excellent and one of the, the best. Um, probiotics you have to be careful with. The, I'm trying to pronounce this one, bifobacterium I call it, but I probably don't pronounce it properly. That can be really beneficial with histamine. Some probiotics can actually increase histamine particularly um your common ones you know that you can buy the lactobacillus uh, the cassi they can actually increase histamine so when it comes to probiotics it is good to um, have those professionally recommended so as not to you know, worsen the symptoms and watching the fermented foods because they do tend to be higher in histamine. And I, I know you mentioned earlier about the, the bone broth. Um, some people find they really react to bone broth and other people not so much. So it is an individual approach just because some foods are on the list. Some people seem to be able to tolerate them better than others. But I find anything over eight hours of cooking time with bone broth um, may be potentially an issue because the longer it's being cooked for, the more histamine and amines it will produce. So go for home cooking bone broth and cook it for a shorter period of time just to be on the safe side and see how you go, you know, work up the cooking time and see if you're okay with that. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously as you then improve your function and your ability to clear the Dow levels um, and your histamine levels come back into that um, optimal range, then things can be evolved further. Absolutely, and that's, mm. that's the beauty of it. But, you know, there's a lot of food people don't realise is high in histamine. I mean, alcohol, champagne. Um, that's why so many people get red ears and red eyes when they drink and they get mm. the sinus and the stuffy nose, coffee as well. Um, a lot of these Jeez. products that mm. will be histamine um, producing within the body. So 
fermented foods. You know, people are going crazy on fermented foods at the moment. They're so important for the gut and the health and well-being, but we're only meant to have small spoonfuls of them, you mm. know, not eating them um, as much as we are and kombucha and things like that can be issues for some people. So it's having that awareness so that people aren't eating the same food over and over and then wondering why they may be having these histamine-type reactions. Yeah, especially with the emergence of gut health. And as you say, people are going crazy. It is interesting when you look at the foods that are high in histamine, many of them are, you know, healthy. So it is about working out the optimal amount. So that we call it the upper limit so that you don't, you know, hit that upper limit and then get the increase in symptoms. Exactly. I mean, even mm. chai tea, green tea, they can all have histamine responses within the body. So again, just being aware of that and knowing that can actually really help with the relief of symptoms by maybe not drinking it quite as much or alternating with, with different products and different foods. Yeah, beautiful. And what else have you got on your plate at the moment? Have you got anything else to share with us or would you like to direct our listeners to your online home? Well, at the moment, um, we've got lots of media going on because we're I'm launching the book at the moment, The Forensic Nutritionist, mm-hmm. so we're doing a lot of um, radio. So every Monday I'm, I talk on Talking Lifestyle and now we're, last couple of Tuesdays, we're doing live call-ins so people can phone in and ask questions about any little weird signs and symptoms and dry skin and rashes and dandruff, you know, that type of thing and not sure what might be causing it doing live call-ins on a Tuesday afternoon, talking lifestyle, with it, which is lots of fun. We've got some TV coming up too, so that's very exciting. So it is a very busy time. And I'm also just in the process of about to launch a new nutritional product. So we're launching a new range called Vitasol, which is nutritional supplementation, or should I say nutritional food product, um, to really up the nutrients in the diet without any synthetic vitamins or nutrients. It's all natural, concentrated whole foods to add to your regular diet to really make sure that you are getting adequate nutrients in the diet. Great. So I highly recommend our listeners head to uh, FionaTuck.com and get your hands on a copy of The Forensic Nutritionist and find out more about Fiona. And you've got lovely recipes and articles and lots of information on there. So it's another great resource for our listeners. It's been wonderful to connect with you, Fiona. Thanks so much for your time today. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. It's It's been really wonderful. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.